The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. So let me ask you a question tonight as we get started with the message. What what are traditions? I have no working definition to put on a screen or anything. What do you think a tradition is? What are some traditions? Things that people have done over and over again before. Okay. Things that people have done over and over again before us. And some of those things can be good, right? Some of them they are. Some of them can be, eh, it doesn't matter. Um, some things, I mean, they're in the this nation. There are celebrations. And, they're not, and they'll even call them holidays. Now, when you hear the word holiday, it actually has two words it's, that actually make up the one. It's holy days. So we need to be careful. I always say this. is I, We might have observances. Some of those things, like they do Fourth of July celebrations or other things, those aren't holidays. Those are observances. Veterans Day is not a holiday. It's an observance. Memorial Day is an observance. Those are things the country is our country has puts on, and whether or not someone is for those against those or are indifferent doesn't matter. Really, what comes down to me is there are what we call holy days, and in, in the church there are several holy days. One of those holy days, or times of of, of worship, or times of expression or remembrances, we talk about Easter, but we also know that although there's a celebration of there might be a celebration of Resurrection Sunday. We also, every Sunday, we gather together to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. That's why we do it. On the first day of the month, the first day of the of the week, the Lord's Day being Sunday. There are those who celebrate Christmas and they celebrate things like that. But really, Christmas is it's just an observance, a time, and it's considered a holiday or a holy day. I mean, the birth of Christ is a very, can we at least admit this, that not, they, I mean, Christ's birth is a pretty amazing event. No one in the Christianity would ever go, I don't know, it's just, you know, it's just all pagan all around. No, it's not, the pagan, his birth was not pagan, okay? It might be how some celebrate it, or it might be considered things that people might not agree on that, but we must at least agree that Jesus was born incarnate of the Holy Spirit by the Virgin Mary, right? We at least can see that. And we need to respect that. We need to know more and respect it. We need to worship Him and the God it is because He brings in, He brings Himself in, humiliates Himself, and humbles Himself to the point of not only coming in the flesh, but to the cross. So traditions aren't always bad, okay? But we can celebrate things that could be potentially wrong. We could we could celebrate things that are potentially bad. Some things potentially evil or disobedient to Christ. There's things that we could celebrate. And so when we look at what I ask this question in a way not to be derogatory, okay? But I ask, what good are your traditions? Because there are some some of uh, people I know. They're they might be Episcopal or Anglican. They're part of the Reformed tradition. 
but they have a lot of traditions and they do a lot of things. They still observe saints and they they still look at look to their forefathers and the, the writings of those people and their traditions. And we have to be careful in how we do these things. And the main reason why we need to be cautious or careful is because if we're not, we can fall in line with what the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' time were doing. And that's what we're going to find ourselves tonight. Okay, We're going to be in the book of Matthew again, chapter 15, as we continue on. But I will say this. That I'm going to give you a couple of the blanks. All right. The first one is this. The foundation of the tradition reveals its validity. The foundation of the tradition reveals whether or not it is valid. If you want to go ahead and put up the next one. And I put, if, it, if the foundation is in man, then it is false because it's not instituted by God. Now, we're not going to get into um, a discussion on um, exclusive psalmody or what uh, we're not going to get into what's permissible for our worship and all that kind of stuff. But I want us to understand if the foundation of our tradition is found in man, then it is false because it's not instituted by God. Matthew chapter 15, we're going to be in verses 4, 1 through 2 at first. And this is what it says. Then the Pharisees, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. When we're talking about washing our hands before we eat, is it a good practice for cleanliness? Yes. It's a great practice so that if you have germs upon your hands, you don't stick your hands in the food and especially thing and share them with everybody else in the home or wherever the party or what have you, right? But that's not what this is talking about. I want you to understand that this is they're they're obsessed. They're not OCD with germs and germophobic or anything. They believe they gotta wash their hands in a certain way according to the tradition of the elders to make sure they're clean before they eat that food. All right? They're putting this emphasis there. Now I want you to understand it was very he harped on this. The the thing is this why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Not why do your disciples break the commands of God because by the way it's not in the it's nowhere in the commands of God that we have to wash our hands a certain way before we eat the thing it comes down to it is if the foundation is in man it's false and it's not instituted by God and this is what's going to happen y'all remember later on after Jesus's resurrection after Pentecost that Peter and John have been preaching in the name of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead and all these things and they were told don't preach in that name again and they go out, and guess what Peter and John and all of them are doing? They're preaching in the name of Jesus again. In Acts 5, that's what comes up. It says, When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood, Jesus, upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered them, What? We must obey God, rather than men. Now, people got upset. They're still upset, and they, they, they actually usher them out to talk. And there's a, there's a uh, 
there is a uh, man, and his name is Gamaliel, and he 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 speaks up and he says some things. Let's look at the look at further on and starting in verse thirty three, I guess you could say, or so. He said, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up, and in the days of the census, and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not only not be able to overthrow them, you might even be found opposing God. And so I want us to look at this thing. The reason, if a foundation of your tradition is in man, it's going to be false. And I will tell you this, it will fail. And here's the, one of the measurements of because we have some liberty in some of the things we do. There might be some things that you prefer to do that I don't do and I don't need to do to keep myself holy before our God. But here's the thing. When we come to these perspectives, we need to understand if a tradition is in man, it's going to fail. But it's of, if it's of God, what will happen? There's no way you can defeat it, right? But don't let men, don't let men Try to convince you that holiness is equated with a tradition that is not instituted by God. In fact, if you look at B, those traditions instituted by man will surely and quickly abandon that which God commands. Those traditions instituted by man will surely and quickly abandon that which God commands. I mean, if you think about it, if people are already following their own traditions and they're they're putting their traditions before the commands of God, or they're adding to, it won't take long before your a tradition or a teaching of men is going to contradict or come into conflict with the Word of God. This is one of those crux moments that we know throughout throughout uh, church history that 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 men would they, they discuss these things, they, they fought over these things, these these doctrines to determine whether it's of God or if it's of men. And when we find in our theme passage, he says he in verses three through six, it says Jesus answered them. He says, "Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition?" I love this. I love that Jesus, instead of answering answering this impotent question, why do you why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders and not wash their hands? He asks, why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your traditions? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God. That means my duty or my responsibility to care for you and to help you. I, I'm sorry, I know I'm to honor you and do that, but I give it to God instead. He's, this is what it says. He and you say he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. It doesn't take much or very long for the traditions of man to hold up to the traditions of man. And, and they abandon the very words and the commands of God. In fact, we let's look at what the command was. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. 
What does it say? Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. Now, I want us to hear that, okay? It does not mean that we obey our parents to the day we die, because there's a certain point in time that God, God has called your parents to train you in such a way that you will be married, you will be your own person. I'll always say this, I believe that even before one is married, you ought to be mature and able to make decisions and honor God. You don't need mommy and daddy constantly telling you as you get older, there's a point in time where you're fully responsible for yourself in these areas. But it says to honor your father and your mother, to respect them. That goes for a lifetime. That goes for your lifetime. It's, honor does not mean obey. A godly parent won't require you to obey them all of your life. But to honor them, they deserve honor because God said so. And we don't get to set aside honor to our parents just because we want to do something else. We still honor them. We respect them. Now, I, I could teach a lot about this, and I have in the past. And I'm not going to go into certain areas. These are godly men and women of God. So we're to honor them, but we don't have to do what they say at a certain point. We don't have to follow them in their unbelief. We don't have to go down those paths, but we ought to honor them before God. And this is the thing. In, in, Ephesians, in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Then it goes on and says, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. What was that promise? That you may live long in the land, that it may go well with you, and you may live long in the land that the Lord your God's given you, right? So traditions instituted by man, it doesn't take long. This is a simple example Jesus gave. For the sake of your tradition, you abandon the commands of God. At some point in time, traditions of men will come into conflict. And when man institutes anything or adds anything to God's law word as a matter of tradition, they quickly abandon that which God has instituted. Why? It's because they're exchanging the truth and authority of God for, a rather, for another rival authority, their own. It doesn't matter how religious they sound in doing it. They are complete. They are in complete rebellion against God. And I want us to hear that because just because someone dresses up in a robe, says special prayers, or reads from a book, or they only sing songs from a book, that does not make them holier or more righteous. They have a tradition. They have a liturgy that they follow that's written out for them, and they follow it rote. Some of them leave very little room for the Holy Spirit to move. And some allow the Holy Spirit to move completely. But when they put the tradition of the church, for example, heaven forbid, you know, we don't say the right thing before taking the, Lord, the Lord's Supper, the Lord taking communion. He says whenever you do it, you remember Him. That's what He says. You don't have to say magic words for it to be right. So be careful there. When people... When people use these traditions to, and they abandon the commands of God, our only response is to call these people out and to repentance. I mean, I love to have a great, I could have a long discussion, but 
It's no different than the people who believe that women, if you're going to go to church, you've got to wear a dress because you can't wear men's clothing because that's what Scripture talks about. Interesting enough that both men and women both did not, men in the Old Testament did not wear pants or in Jesus' time. They didn't wear jeans. They wore the same outfits, basically. If you really think about it. They all had robes. They all wore dresses. They all did. Just long dresses of sorts. But they looked different. The point was what? Not about, it's not about how you dress, really. There are churches today that don't allow women to come in that wear pants. There are churches today that won't allow a woman to speak to men. They'll just, y'all are supposed to be quiet the whole time you're at church. And that means when we fellowship, women can gaggle together or whatever, gather together and talk. But they can't talk to men or discuss theological issues. That'd just be all right, all out sinful, you know, you know, because they might have one of those Eve moments and she deceive a man. No. When people do certain things or they act certain ways or they speak in certain ways that, that according to traditions instituted by man, we need to call them out and call them to repentance. Matthew, in the theme passage, verses 7 through 9, Jesus said, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, the, these, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Now listen to this. Look what it says teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. See, the danger here and why they need to be called out and called to repentance is not just because they are in error, but they are teaching their commandments and their traditions as if, they were, as if it was God's spoken word. This is what the heresy of most cults really are. This is the heresy that they teach. They either add to, subtract from, harp on the insignificant, or divide us away from the truth of God's law word. Recently, a brother, and I have permission to write that. I didn't put his name up there, but go ahead and put the thing on the screen. I'm going to put this. He wrote this, and he said, and there's two screens, two shots. They'll go to the second part. It says, Saints, the home church fellowship we are a part of has begun down a dangerous, in my opinion at least, path of questioning the inerrancy of Scripture, and some even outright denying it. Inerrancy means that Scripture, has, the Bible has is without error. Okay, they're they're questioning whether it actually does have error. They believe it has error in it. Saying God did not actually write it. It was written by men. The Old Testament has events that Jesus could not do, such as the set as the set apart for destruction passages. Long story about how it got started, but basically, I would challenge my friends to start thinking more biblically about things such as abortion, immigration, public schooling, etc. I would get the response of what G, of what would Jesus do, or isn't Jesus our example, which I generally agree with, but I explain we worship the triune God of, of scriptures, which has led it to outright denial of certain scripture. I believe this is all coming from an author and home church pastor who says Jesus is the word and not scriptures. I explain both are referred to as the word, but to no avail. Anyway, I guess I'm asking for a little guidance as my patience has been stretched thin because this is, was all discussed at the very beginning of this home church plant and now everything is up in the air. Am I overreacting by telling them I won't support a group who denies a foundational doctrine such as the authority of Scripture? Is he overreacting when they say that? No, he's not. When they're saying, well, Jesus is enough. In fact, 
looking at excerpts from the multiple books this author has written that they're fault that these people want to follow he he specifically talks about to truly have a relationship with Jesus you need to abandon the scriptures because they're not authoritative well I want to I want to go through a couple of things I want y'all to listen carefully to what scripture says about that in second Peter chapter 1 16 through 21 it says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as, a lamp, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arise, rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now we'll say this, when Jesus left this earth, he didn't abandon us, did he? He said, lo, I will be with you always in the, in the Great Commission. He said, I'm going to be with you always, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm what? I'm sending you the Comforter, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, who will guide you into all truth. And the very word here, when we're spoken, it says, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. That's what the Word of God says. In John chapter 5, Jesus was responding to these same type of teachers, these Pharisees, and he goes on, he says, he looks at them, he says, in the Father, in verse 37, the Father who has sent, him, uh, has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you don't have his word abiding in you, for you don't believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. And he goes on and says, if you believe, verse 46, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now I'm going to say this is not contradictory. What Jesus was telling them was very specific. He said, you go, you think the scriptures will bring you eternal life. No, it's not the scriptures that are bringing the eternal life. It's the one they testify about. It's Jesus Christ. He says, I am he, but you refuse to come to me, Jesus. You, you hold on to your tradition and your readings as if they give life, but they give nothing. In and of themselves, they are nothing. They, they don't have, they, these are words, just give mental assent, say, all oh, these scriptures are amazing. That's not enough to say that Jesus and say, you know what, I, I just need a relationship with Jesus. Well, what is, what if my, how do you determine what kind of relationship is holy and righteous before God? What's acceptable before God? It's one that believes in him, has placed your faith in him. The reality of the whole the reality of the whole is this. When we abandon Scripture and follow the traditions of man or the commands of men, we are going down a dangerous, dangerous path. And I'm going to say that is heresy. 
And that's what a cult does. A cult seeks to divide you from Scripture, divide you from the very work of Christ, and add something on or subtract something from or divide you from God's work and makes it about how you can work. Honestly, if you look at, at the cults or the biggest cults of the past, if you look at those cults like the uh, Jim, Jim, Jim Jones and those, what he did is he he kept dividing people and kept moving his people and moving them away from their families to the point they went to another country. And in the process of doing all these things, he was not only did he have all kinds of other issues, he was a drug addict, he had all kinds of health issues. He basically claimed himself to be God. And then guess what? When people came to, they found them, they came and interviewed, they saw the situations where people were going hungry, children were being abused. Guess what he did? Part of their practice was in case the end of the world came. So they sat down and they had their communion together. And in their communion, they drank Kool-Aid. And it was laced with cyanide. And they killed every one of them, including children. And when they came to find them, there were babies and children and adults laying dead everywhere. Cults always seek to divide you from truth. They'll use what sounds like truth. The fact is, is this cult that this, and I'll say this, this home fellowship that he's talking about, they sound like Christians. This this person who's a pastor who writes books sounds like a Christian. He said, but he it was not until he left the pulpit that he truly understood who Jesus was. That don't make sense. That doesn't make him a better man. And he understood until he abandoned Scripture and just got to know Jesus. Well, that Jesus could be the an incarnation, or, or not an incarnation, but uh, it could be a representation of a demon. You would never know the difference because it sounds good. But anything that leads you away from the truth of God's Word is not of God. What did, what did God say throughout the Old Testament on? If you obey my commandments, if you follow my ways, you'll be fruitful, you'll multiply, you'll fill the earth, you'll be successful, you'll be prosperous, you'll be all these things. But if you don't, he would enslave them, he would destroy them, he would do these things. All right. Point number two. That which defiles anyone comes from the heart of the individual, not the culture or society. I know that's a lot of words, but you'll understand why. That which defiles anyone comes from the heart of the individual, not the culture, not the society around them. Jesus is continuing to talk to him about uncleanliness. Because they're concerned about them breaking the tradition. Not, they broke the tradition of the elders by not washing their hands. And, and Jesus is going to, I'm going to tell you something. He's going to, I'm not, I don't want to put it, I don't want to be, um, Irreverent anyway, but Jesus uses potty humor here even in this passage of Scripture. He uses bathroom humor. That's why God, I, I, I think you need to hear it. Listen closely. He said in Matthew 15, verses 10 through 20, he said, He called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. So it didn't matter that you plucked the grain with unclean hands or you didn't wash your hands and you ate it. it. That's not what defiles a person. It might be unclean hands, but it's not what defiles the whole person makes the whole person unclean. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. 
Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to them, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see? Whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. That does not mean I want you to stop washing your hands before we have a meal. Or after we go outside and work with animals. What is he talking about? He said, you're worried about the exterior things and how they might affect you as an individual. But what you need to worry about is that which is on the interior, the very heart of men. And might affect you, others. Your personal sin comes out of your mouth. It proceeds from your heart. And what happens? It affects other people. So I want us to understand this. We are a sin-sick people, not just dirty. We are sin-sick people. Not just dirty people. We know what Romans 3 tells us, that we're none is righteous, no, not one. We know that the law of God brings knowledge of sin. We know that we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. We know that we're justified by grace. We are a sin-sick people, not just a dirty people. And really, what, what I've come to find out is that in most situations, we treat sinful people, sin-sick people, we who are supposed to be holy and righteous and set apart unto God, we treat them as dirty, like, ooh, they are disgusting. Now I'm going to say this. Without a doubt, many people are sinful and they walk in such sin that it is, some of it's, un, it's unnatural. It's, dis, it's gross. To think about their sin. We're not, we're, in Scripture, we're not even supposed to talk about it. That's what Scripture even goes as far as to say. But I want you to understand, when we look at these sin-sick people, we need to stop looking at them as, oh, they're dirty untouchables. Who the heck do we think we are? Because we were such as they. In fact, I'm reminded in John 13, when Jesus... And John, he talks about Jesus comes and he washes, he takes off his outer garment, he puts on a robe around him or a towel around him, and he goes and begins to wash his disciples' feet. And he comes around and he gets over to Peter. And what does Peter say? Oh, Lord, do you wash my feet? Whoa, 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 whoa. You, don't, you shouldn't wash my feet. And Jesus' response was very simple. He said, you'll never, Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, I don't wash you. You have no share with me. You have no part with me. If I don't wash you, you have no part in my kingdom, is what he's telling him. And then Peter's response was, not just my, not just that, but my, my head and my hands, my whole body, everything, that washed me whole. And Jesus was like, listen, the one who's bathed, bathed does not need to wash. It's not, you don't need, I'm not doing this to cleanse your outside. 
This is not about your outside cleanliness. You're not just dirty. You need to be washed with the blood of Jesus. You need to be washed with my blood. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except to his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, he says. And you are clean. They'd already been clean. They'd already been set apart except for the one who would betray him. And Hebrews 10, verses 15 through 25, it says, The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Then he goes on, he says, We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Now listen to this. Very simple. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are sin sick people who are in need of a Savior to wash us and that is what He has done. We don't need to be washed by the waters of men over and over and over again. We don't need to be washed by the traditions of men and to make ourselves clean and holy and presentable to God. He has washed us once and for all. We need to be sanctified. That's a work of the Holy Spirit in us to, to continue not just to cleanse us, but to make us wise, to, to, to add and, and build and put it on the fruit of the Spirit in all things. That is part of life. We, need, don't, we don't need men to wash us over and over again. We don't need to go before men and say, look at me, I'm washing my hands, I am being made clean. It's not the traditions that cleanse us. It's the very work of Jesus Christ alone. That's what James tells us, and I don't, I don't have it there, but what do you say? It's, it's our faith and our works together. It's not our works alone. It's not our belief and our mental ascent alone. It's our faith in action. We need to be washed clean by the blood of the Lamb and walk in obedience to the Word of God. That's what we need. Let's move on and be the depravity of a society or the culture is indicative of the state of the church. The depravity of a society or the culture is indicative of the state of the church. As I was sharing, I'm writing I'm writing response to someone who challenged me regarding my strategy for impacting the kingdom culture, the culture of our society. I'm writing and I'm writing very clear. And one of the things I would say before we move on to this point, I will say this, you can't walk around calling these people alphabet people you can't walk around calling them heathens and pagans and doing all these things and looking down on them as if you have some righteousness of your own. What we have to do is realize that the reason why we have people who are identifying as A, B, C, D, L, Q, B, G, T, whatever you want to call it, the reason why we have it is not because of the state of the society or the culture. It's because of the state of the church. Because we haven't addressed these things. We have taught false piety. We have, we have moved in these ways. So it was Henry Van Til that once said, he quipped this, the culture is religion externalized. The culture that you see is the religion of the church externalized. It is not the society as a whole is one thing and the church is something different. 
Because we are in and of this world. We are in part of it. And if we truly believe what God has said and what God has commanded us, I, can, I, I believe this, then our culture would look differently. And so our work is not how we can fix the political system according to what some people might think. It's not about if we get the right president, the right governors, or the right county leaders. That will not fix the system. You can go and change all the laws that you want and make them sound like biblical laws, but if we don't change, if the heart of the people don't change, it doesn't matter. And you can't start that from the top down. You have to start from the bottom community, from the personal individual level to the family and build up from there. That's the only way. That's God's plan. It's not man's plan. God's plan is from the ground up, from the family up. Therefore, we, if we have a, therefore, if we have a depraved culture and we have a depraved society, it's because we have a depraved church, quote unquote, church, in its midst. Matthew sixteen eight, uh, Matthew sixteen verses eighteen to nineteen, Jesus looks at Peter and he tells them, "You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it." Well, you know we've talked about this. What it means is that the hinges of the gates of hell cannot stand against the church. It's not that we're holding back Satan, but we're storming the gates of hell to conquer it. We already have victory in Jesus. The thing is, is we take the opposite view and we, we need to be reminded that we have the power of God dwelling in us by His Holy Spirit, and we are called to storm the gates of hell. They won't stand if we storm them. It's because of our apathy. It's because of our complacency in the church that we have a society that speaks about their depravity. They parade it in pride parades down the streets, but that's not because of just because they are more powerful than the Christians. It's because Christians have sat back and, and try to keep these, these thoughts and these talks and these thinkings and these, these ideas in the, they want to keep them in the closet rather than, you hear this? They want to, we, we all too often, the churches have wanted to keep these depravities in the closet rather than call people to repentance because of them and preach the word of God to them. Romans 1 16 through 23 talks about, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone. We're told that the righteous live by faith. And we're told that God, the word, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And we, we, we use this passage to talk about the depravity of man in a society. But I'm going to say this, I believe that passage today has no difference there's no difference between a world that we live in than what the church looks like today. And that depravity, that same depravity, they suppress the truth in their own unrighteousness time and time again. And they'd rather separate themselves and say, these people are evil, but I'm much better. And the reason why these societal and cultural ills belong and are allowed or they're there is because of that apathy. See, true religion doesn't look like man-made traditions, rituals, and celebrations. It doesn't. True religion is not based um, on, on mimicking society to fill the wants and desires of man. True religion is based on the, in the works of God that are obedience to His commands, bringing justice to the oppressed.
I remember a man that I went to went to school with, and I tell you all about this. That he was a man who had only affection for other men. He was a homosexual, and he did acts with other men. And I have no doubt. So I'll say this: the man he hit it on. He hit on every one of us guys. He was always around. He said all kinds of explicit and nasty things. So I'm gonna tell you something about that man. One day he shared something with us all. And from the time he was a young boy, he had family member that abused him. In fact, the only idea of sexuality or what was he knew was that with a man. So he thought that was the only thing that he was supposed to be and the only thing he was supposed to do. He knew no other thing. And so he was the way he... And I'm not saying that he couldn't change because he did or he tried. I'm going to say this. I'm not excusing his sin or his depravity. Can I say this to you? It took men who were willing to be seen with him, to have the conversations with him. I, I said this. I went to church with a man who had more beautiful hair than most of the women there. And people look at you kind of funny when you got this guy who has this, this black man with a big bouffant hairdo come to church with you. I don't care. Because the man didn't need my judgment. He needed Jesus Christ. He needed the blood of Christ. He needed people to be able to speak to him on these matters. His depravity or his sinfulness existed because no one in his church would speak up and no one would intervene in the lives of his family to the point that he would be set free from the bondage of this oppression by a family member. And no one stepped in to say, this is not who God created you to be. The church didn't. And we still today, we're quiet. Just keep them in the closets, keep them off our streets, and we'll be fine. But they need the good news of the kingdom preached to them. James 1.26 says, talks about real religion. It says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Never out of the mouth, the heart speaks. That's what defiles a person. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction to keep oneself unstained, oneself from being polluted by this world. We're to bring justice to this world. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Jesus talks to them. I actually believe that might be wrong, but the passage. But he talks about that the scribes and the scribes and Pharisees they sit in Moses' seat. He's not being contradictory. He says, "Do what they say, but don't do what they do." They basically travel the travel the world to make twice the sons of hell hell that they are. They they do these things. They do these work. Don't do what they do. Do what they say. Do why? Because what they're when they're preaching, they're reading from God's word, they're reading his word, they're reading the law, but they don't put it into practice. 
true religion is taking that faith, is taking that word, and putting it into action time and time again. And this is the last part this, this evening. I'm, I'm trying not to leave too many holes. But therefore, we need the just judgment of the Lord to begin with the church. This person I wanted to re I'm writing in response to, as y'all are writing that down, we need the just judgment of the Lord to begin with the church. He's afraid that everything might fall apart. And then what? So let's not obey God. Let's, let's choose the lesser of two evils. Let's not obey God because everything might fall apart. What kind of faith is that? Is God not in control? Is God not sovereign? Is he not provident? Is he not omnipotent? All those things? Yes. If God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-provider, he's, he's everything to us. Let me ask this question. Why are we worried? What, what if the situations that we have, the situations in our country, what if a Democratic president gets elected? Oh, well, maybe it's the just judgment of God. Maybe it'll bring about repentance and revival. 1 Peter 4 tells us, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Ultimately, what will happen if God begins judging the house of him? If repentance and revival happen with the church, the culture and the society will follow. We ought not expect uh, expect to be a culture uh, for a culture to do what we have not done and not willing to do ourselves. How do we expect a culture, a society that we live in to reflect the image of God when we as the church don't reflect the image of God most of the time? The purpose of God, the intent of God. The, we're not obedient to Him. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's writing to the church and it says, I'm not writing, I'm writing to you to not, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such one. For what have I have to do with judging others? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. He gives us an example, and I want to say this, the ultimate point is what? For repentance to happen and reconciliation to begin and restoration begins at the house of God judgment begins there first and that the church will walk in, in in walk in obedience to Christ the society will change families change local governments change state governments change all those things change but the point is we cannot legislate morality on that level it's done one person at a time by the holy spirit changing their lives and them living in righteousness and obedience to God. I say this again, we'll not get the culture or society to change by calling them names like the alphabet people or shaming them or cursing them. Society will change when we first repent of our sin and preach the gospel which has transformed us.
until we are transformed by the gospel of the kingdom, how will society ever be transformed by the gospel of the kingdom? Because what we're saying is we don't believe what we're saying. We are no different than the Pharisees. We speak something, but we don't do it. We don't believe it. We don't put it into action. Matthew chapter 13, we're reminded, and we talked about this, but it says, I just love this pat, this one verse, this one part of it. It says in verse 43, he says, The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. When we look at the things as we continue to grow and the kingdom continues to expand as, as people, as revival breaks out and, and repentance it happens and revival breaks out, one of the things is it will time and time again, his righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom. What we'll find is that more and more light will be shown on the darkness and the darkness will flee. That's why we're called in Matthew 5 to be the salt of the earth. That's why we're called in Matthew 5, that you are the light of the world. But the reality is, unless we're, we're willing to put the light on a stand and reflect it and not, a, not be a, a diverted, and listen, we cannot be a mirror of someone else's reflection of light. We have to shine the light ourselves. We need to know not where the light is, but we need to be the light of the world. As he's commanded us. We don't hide a lamp under a basket. We put it on the lampstand so it shines before. And it's not just one. It's all of us who are in Christ. And as the church begins to shine the light of Jesus Christ. Society and culture will change. It will change. It will have no choice but to change. Because people will have their lives transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. They will be washed clean from their sin, and others will follow, and we will shine. The righteous will shine like the sun. I don't need to re-elect President Trump to see the righteous shine. And I don't have to fear whether a Democrat gets elected to see the light of the kingdom shine. Because honestly, in the scheme of things, in the scheme of my lifetime, not one president matters according to the kingdom of God. It matters whether you or I are obedient to follow him. What matters is how, what we do with the light. What we do with the Son of God. What we do to transform this world in the name of Jesus for the gospel of the kingdom. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.